1: It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art, as we'll learn and talk about today, and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim is for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. We're glad you've joined us for this episode. We're going to talk about a book that speaks to the thesis of this podcast and our personal views of what it means to learn. Hosting this episode along me is uh, our chairman and chief investment officer. I like to call him dad, Bill Smead. Thanks for joining me, dad. Great to be with you, as always. Robert Hagstrom is joining us to talk about his book, Investing, The Last Great Liberal Art, that he published in 2000. Robert has published other books, including his most recent work, Warren Buffett, Inside the Ultimate Money Mind. Mr. Hagstrom is the Chief Investment Officer and Senior Portfolio Manager at Equity Compass. Prior to joining Equity Compass, he was a Portfolio Manager at Lake Mason Capital Management, running the Lake Mason Growth Trust. Before we go going with Robert, Bill, is there anything that you're, you're kind of you know looking forward in, in our discussion? Cole, in my career Robert has been a thought
0: leader and explainer of how to in, uh, have investment success and how
1: to accumulate wisdom. I agree and I'm stoked to get started so uh, let's let's jam. Uh, Robert, as you've probably heard, uh, your writing has influenced us hugely as individuals, investors and teachers, to other people. Thank you for joining us today and we appreciate the chance to talk about your work.
2: Well, Cole and uh, Bill, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation.
1: So, Robert, tell us what prompted you
0: to write in Investing, The Last Liberal Art. Also, can you explain to our listeners some of the background, how it ended up with this name?
2: (laughs) Yeah. well, it, it you know you kind of go back to um, I guess it was in those days uh, it would have been uh, the outstanding Investor Digest the old Henry Emerson uh, piece of research and he had an interview or I guess he had he had, he had covered uh, an interview with Charlie Munger Vice Chairman of Berkshire about a uh, lecture that he had given at USC at the, the Marshall School of Business I think Doctor. I think it was Dr. Babcock's uh, class, and, and, and it was an investment seminar. And, and so Charlie was asked to come, and, and he showed up, and, and clearly he said, you know, the, the students were expecting me to talk about the stock market or stocks. And, you know, I threw him a curveball. I said, I'm not going to talk about any of that. I'm going to talk about the art of achieving worldly wisdom, which I'm sure, had I been sitting in the uh, audience there, I probably, my eyes would have gone counterclockwise. I don't know. It's kind of like, where do we go from here? And, and then what Charlie did brilliantly was to outline uh, the methods one would use to achieve worldly wisdom. And his thesis being that if you did achieve this worldly wisdom, it would ultimately make you a better investor. And so you kind of put the pieces together and say, okay. And and, and Charlie's thesis was basically, you know, you need to connect all the major models and all the major disciplines, uh, somewhat like a liberal arts outline. So, you know, physics and biology and mathematics, the hard sciences, but... You go into the soft sciences of philosophy, sociology, and and psychology literature all down the road. And he said, you know, it's it's not necessary to become expert in each one of the disciplines, but just to understand the major mental models of each of those disciplines. And then what happens is that you're able to see the market more thoughtfully because you're looking through the lens of not just finance and accounting, but all the other disciplines to gain insights about what's going on or what might be going on. And, and I said, well, okay, I had written the Warren Buffett way and, and um, the Warren Buffett portfolio. And about that same time um, I had known Bill Miller since I was a broker at Lake Mason and Bill invited me out to the Santa Fe Institute in 1996. And we had gone to the, what, what, what is called the Stan Stanislaw Ulam Memorial Lectures that are held in the fall. and, and I went my first trip out with him in, in, in 1996 and attended the lectures. And it was really mind-blowing because, you know, we were talking about ant colonies and Navajo Indian reservations and, and all this things. And, and I said to Bill afterwards in a, in, a, in a very dim-witted way, what does this have to do with buying IBM or selling General Motors? And he said, nothing. But what it does is help you to think differently. And so that began a relationship with Bill and I continued to go to the Santa Fe Institute over the years and began to draw on the lessons of biology and complex adaptive systems and, and all of that and then really, really began to expand my reading list into the other disciplines Bill being a, um, you know did his you know did his PhD in philosophy at Johns Hopkins at the dissertation and, and you know helped me in that area so really broadened out my thinking and then to your last question, what prompted the title that when we titled the book and the book came out in spring of 2000 and I called it Lattice Work after Charlie Munger's Lattice Work and Mental Models. I think it was called Lattice Work, The New Investing. And the book was a dud, you know, it, it didn't do anything. Uh, you know, the two lessons are never bring out an investment book in a bear market. <laughs> and we were in the middle of the technology bear market. And the second thing is let the publisher uh, suggest the title. Don't be so stubborn about your title. And Miles Thompson, uh, who then was uh, had moved over uh, to Columbia Business School, basically um, said, why don't we call it investing the last liberal art? And I said, okay, I was a liberal arts major and maybe that'll work, I, you know, whatever you want to do. So he actually had so many of the hard back copies of Lattice Work that he went back to the manufacturer. They ripped off the hard copy front and back and slapped on a paperback cover that said, Investing the Last Level Art. And, it, and those that have that paperback first edition will see if they open it up. The pages of the book say lattice work on the top. It was actually the, the same pages they used in the hardback of lattice work of, of, of investing. But no doubt what happened then is that there were so many liberal arts majors in the investing world uh, that resonated with them. And, and the book ended up uh, taking off. And, and then we did the second edition, I guess, in 2012
0: a real interesting thought one of my first uh talks that i heard from munger was he was talking to the stanford business school students and he told them that psychology was the most undervalued of 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 the uh of the subject matters and then secondly i shared a subscription for many years to outstanding investor digest
1: yeah yeah there's not too many millennials that know what that is robert so i i appreciate the fact that i do um so 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 let's let's uh, you started the preface to your book out with this you know conversation around worldly wisdom a term that Munger like you pointed out uses um, t- teach our listeners what this term means.
2: Well, you know the, the, the concept of lattice work. Think about a fence. Um, you know that was the imagery that we used. Some people have wooden fences on the, on their backyard, and along the top are kind of uh, you know the lattice. The lattice work uh, or, or lattice uh, of a fence that it kind of goes into, um, you know, sideways and ups and downs, and it, it it's kind of it looks to me it always looked imagery as you know connections between things, and so we kind of use the imagery of building a, a lattice work fence of models, and the idea was you know if you thought about it from a physics based world you would think about it this way if you thought about it a biological way you would think it that way but let's bring in philosophy how does that work and so the whole imagery was you know, uh, connecting the dots, if you will, or the light bulbs, better yet. The light bulbs <clears throat> were on the fence and they would glow on and off to what degree a certain insight uh, would give you, uh, you know, better thoughts about what's going on in the market. And so that's kind of how we set it up um, in our mind. And so then, then the book naturally just went through uh, the major disciplines. And I started with physics because being a liberal arts major, that was my hardest subject. Uh, in school, and and so we went through the Newtonian world, the me- mechanistic world, which ultimately found its way into uh, economics in the 18th, 19th century, uh, with Alfred Marshall, supply and demand, and and really still rules the roost today as, as as more of an equilibrium model, a mechanistic type model of how to think about the economy, and then summed up that you know that's incomplete, and it was the work at Santa Fe Institute with uh, Brian Arthur who. Uh, had been doing a lot of work on complex adaptive systems and worked with Bell uh, to think about it from a biological aspect. And, and when you think about it from a biological aspect of a living organism that, uh, that learns, evolves, adapts, changes, um, you, you quickly recognize that the, the biological metaphor is a much more appropriate way in which to think about markets than the Newtonian model. But of course, then at the end of the day, you know, you're still looking for the Newton of the grass blades because there's not a mathematical way yet uh, in order uh, that's capable of of being able to predict these living systems. Um, You know, I actually had an email from Bill the other day. I said, you know, do you think we'll ever get there? And he said, absolutely not. (laughs) There's there's absolutely no way uh, that we're going to be able to build a model that will be able to predict, you know, these complex adaptive systems. The best that we can hope is to get to some probabilistic exercise similar to you know, uh, celestial mechanics or something like that, where you can make odds on bet, but the, the predictive ability. in uh, biological systems is, is beyond our grasp. And so you re you know, as, as Alfred Marshall then said, on uh, the sixth, edition, uh, sixth edition of his book that came out early 1900s, you know, clearly the biology, biological analogies are most apropos, but we don't have any models to work with. So we got to revert back to the mechanistic models uh, that we've been using in supply demand and equilibrium. And because that's the only thing that we have to work with. So I always thought that that was a sad state of affairs because we are working with what we know is a faulty model that will give us faulty outcomes from time to time. But because we have no other map or pathway, we just have to continue to use. them.
1: So uh, plagiarism is totally legal in our business. And like you said, you've, you've plagiarized great ideas from Bill Miller. Uh, we, I, I've plagiarized ideas of yours, Robert, from your book, um, isn't Munger just plagiarizing when he uses the word worldly wisdom uh, uh, to, to, to kind of get into some of the educational part of, of what you get in your book. Uh, Luke 2.52 comes to mind where Luke writes, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Uh, wisdom with God is biblical wisdom. Wisdom with, with man is worldly wisdom. Isn't that what Charlie is just kind of getting at And from a biblical definition? Yeah,
2: that's very interesting. I've never heard that before. I appreciate that, Cole. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I think so. But, you know, he did say that, you know, Charlie, you know, just as I overdosed on Warren Buffett, Charlie overdosed on on Benjamin Franklin. And if you go through the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, you know, there was the, you know, probably the first example of worldly wisdom. And and he always, you know, Charlie kind of almost imitated Ben Franklin, uh, you know, to to this day. And absorb everything about Ben Franklin, and and I think it was at the end of the book we go back to the University of Pennsylvania, uh, which was founded by Ben Grant, I mean uh, by Benjamin Franklin, and and you know you kind of go through those those lessons of, of Ben Franklin, and he probably would be the, the very first he was the very first modern liberal arts major, and the very first person to argue that we needed to think in these multidiscipline terms. The, I think uh, the, the dean of the college there called it the habits of mind that Ben Franklin uh, adapted in his thinking, these habits of mind to look for answers wherever you can in whatever discipline as as opposed to being singularly just a specialist in one area. Uh, Franklin was, uh, I guess, uh, in many ways, Charlie Munger's role model of how to do that.
0: Uh, Charlie often quotes books he's reading. Uh, Is the key reading alone or is there more? After all, like Buffett says, if reading was all all that mattered, the librarians would be millionaires.
2: <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah, um, I, I talked to Bill about that a lot. We talk about you know, Bill is a talk about a guy that reads. Uh, it's not only uh, the volume, the, the, the stacks of books on his desk that he reads. It's it's the diversity of the reading it just astounds me. He reads science, obviously, and he's you know well versed in everything psychology, behavioral finance, philosophy, but he also reads uh, classic literature, uh, you know, and he'll go back and read some of the classics, you know, Moby Dick and things like that. I said, you know, what are you doing? And he goes, you know, you'd just be surprised you pick up a little bit of here, a little bit of there, a little insight there about how to think about problem solving. And he he's so, so diverse in his reading. I I think the, you know, clearly, you know, if you had a book club and you could sit around and Talk about books afterwards. Uh, maybe that—that that certainly would be beneficial. Uh, but Bill is Bill is a solitary reader, and uh, I don't, you know, other than sharing a couple of snippets on a book, uh, you know, we've never had deep, long conversations about books. You know, to give you an anecdote, there is that you know, Bill is very close friends with Cormac McCarthy. You know, very famous writer, and you know, wrote the great uh, uh, trilogies and uh, on the Western trilogies and. He actually was, uh, you know, has been uh, you know, a great member at the Santa Fe Institute. Now, that's Bill and Cormac McCarthy could spend hours talking about a book, um, but Cormac McCarthy is one of the great American writers and probably could uh, keep Bill interested in talking about books more so than I can.
1: <laughs> well, by the way, this is kind of a book club, so uh, this is okay. one of our attempts, just yeah. so you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, Robert? Yeah, yeah. 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 The, the readers of your book learn that
0: broadness is important. That's basically what you're referring to. Yeah. Uh, Cole and I both graduated from the same liberal arts school, Whitman College. Uh-huh. Uh, how do you view broadness in undergraduate education? And how, how's that going in the world of undergraduate programs?
2: Yeah, it's a struggle. Um, you know, and I actually, my alma mater is Villanova. I did my, under, my BA and MA in liberal arts at, at Villanova my master in political science because that's really one of the great liberal arts uh, uh, disciplines because politics and political science has to take in so many other things, history and biology and, I mean, excuse me, history and psychology, sociology on down the line. But, and I, and I, each year I I work with interns uh, at Villanova as a way to give back and help them, you know, beef up their resume. And so the political science majors, I keep telling them, you know, guys, you're on the right path. There was there's no cliche about a liberal arts uh, education. So many people call it, uh, you know, an education for the middle ages because it's not until you're middle-aged that you actually begin to understand how valuable it is. And and, 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 and the the, the challenge is, you know, you you feel for the, for the students because, uh, you know, mom and dad are, they're taking out loans or mom and dad are spending a small fortune and, and they're looking for a payback on their investment and, the way to get a payback on an education investment is to specialize. And to the degree that you specialize, you're more likely to get a, a job getting out the gates. And if you're broadly diversified, nobody knows what to do with you until later in, later in life. Now, having said that, the CFA was a couple of years ago, and I'll, I'll remember it here in a second, uh, did a survey of, of what executives of asset management companies were looking for. Uh, in their executive ranks, you know, for management. What what, what were they looking for? And, and and number one on the list was creativity. They just wanted people that could innovate and think think different. Number two was think in multidiscipline terms. And I said to the author of the study, I said, if that is so important, why are we not spending more time in the CFA curriculum, helping people understand and appreciate a liberal arts education? And he kind of fumbled with the answer. But clearly, those that study liberal arts and stick with it, even if you start as a finance major, but you broaden your view of the world afterwards, as as Charlie Munger would say, uh, you're going to be so much better off competitively, not only in your investments decisions, but in your ability to run organizations, the ability to attract talent, uh, the ability to you know solve problems at the meta level um, of your organization will be so much better for you. But we do a lousy job of promoting it. I mean, I, I won't. I, I'll tell you both Cole and Bill, you know, everybody tells everybody how important liberal arts is and everybody doesn't spend enough time thinking about how we can promote, promote it in a much better way. It's, it's disappointing.
1: I don't disagree. And you, you talk in this book, Robert, about uh, classic, cl- uh, classical education and the value to that. Um, you know, just to give some historical context, I, I assumed you could do this, but I will find out real quick. Uh, can you provide some you know historical context to when a classical education began and when it kind of roughly ended because i mean i i went to a liberal arts college and and we did not do a classical education
2: yeah um i mean, like that's a good question cole it's a it's a complex question yeah. yeah well i mean clearly it began you know in the 1790s at university of pennsylvania and it, 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 when ben franklin because prior to that uh education uh, in the United States in the beginning of our uh, country was uh, you know, mostly divinity schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, William and Mary were divinity schools. These were schools basically that were preparing people to, to enter the church and theology. Uh, it was Franklin um, you know, was the one that said, we well, need to broaden it out and, 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 and go from there. But I guess it's a good question. Um, the great books program by Hutchinson was very popular in the University of Chicago at the early 1900s. But I I guess maybe post World War Two, I'm just going to take a Mm stab at that became a level of specialization, where you began to see people, uh, you know, deciding to be really good in this area and master this area. Now in medicine, Believe me, I, I I don't need my brain surgeon to be multidisciplined. Just just yeah, figure, no just, just you know, or or my heart transplant. Just you know, all I want you to do is study medicine, and and maybe uh, you know that that's true. And and there's certain you know areas, the you know, if you're a mechanic on an airplane, I want you to understand that pretty well. But in other areas of management, running corporations, investing on down the road, and, and you can broaden it out to being a psychologist, sociologist, you know, it's just the this incessant need in my mind that we have to be more broader in our uh, our thoughts. I think it has not really flourished in any great magnitude except you know those little pearls of colleges uh, that you mentioned and some of the smaller liberal arts schools, Brown University and others uh, that you can think of. I've always and I talk about it in the book I was always fascinated with the uh, the great books program at St. John's College. And, and they spend four years doing nothing but, you know, reading the great books. That's all that they do. They don't, you know, they don't have uh, classes and, you know, any that you would think about in, in a university. They basically, freshman year, they're going to study the Greeks, you know, Homer, the Odyssey, you know, <clears throat> things of that nature, Plato, Aristotle, you know, you go through it and they're doing the classics in the freshman year and you know in the sophomore year they're they're moving into a little bit more mathematics copernicus you know uh, things of that nature ptolemy uh, by the junior year they're into the great uh, books don quixote um, meditations descartes uh, and, and they get into newton here and and, and rousseau and adam smith and then uh, in their senior year they're studying you know the <clears throat> supreme court opinions hamilton j madison they go through darwin's origin of species and uh, you know, uh, they're doing music. They're doing uh, uh, the great books—Dostoevsky, Brothers and Karma's. Uh, you know, Tolstoy. I'm just kind of going through my mind: Melville. I know oh, they did—they did Adventures of, you know, Huckleberry Finn. And so you—you you leave after four years, and it just amazes me. You know how much knowledge they had acquired doing nothing but reading books. Now, to to your point, Cole, Cole, this is a great book club because what they do is. Um, their professors are not called professors they're called tutors and and they sit there and discuss those books that they've read and in group settings and and i've always said if i had an opportunity to redo my education i would have spent the first first four years at st john's college and then gone on to get a master's in something down the road
1: well what i appreciated about the all the books you listed um and I, i i'll 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 quote a little Thucydides here. Uh, he, he says, "My work is not a piece of writing designed to meet the taste of an immediate public, but was done to last forever." And that's what all those works have in common: is is they've stood, stood the test of time. So, in thinking about you know this this, this writing and and these ideas, we look at you know kind of and this is kind of one more question on the broader higher education question today. Um, humanities are dying on campuses, mm-hmm. and com- computer science degrees are proliferating, which is in so many respects, Robert, the opposite of what you just uh, pled for, which was, you know, not specializing, but being broad. Um, what, what does this say? What does this say about the student today? In other words, from an equipment standpoint, but then secondly, meeting the needs of the problems we need to solve tomorrow?
2: Well, it, you know, as I said earlier, I, I think this is a deficit. We're, we're, we've got a problem. Um, and, you know, the, the, I understand the whole idea of specialization to get a job and to get a paycheck. I get it. Um, but clearly that in itself, is not going to advance anyone, uh, in a more, in a significant way than, than a liberal arts. So and then the question is, well, what do you do? And I guess, you know, what you're doing Cole and Bill with your program and others is that, you know, when you're 25 years old and you think you're done with your education, no, you're just starting and, you know, you got to pick up books and, you know, investing in the last liberal art is kind of a little reader's digest kind of, preamble to how to think about it but we list you know hundreds of books in there uh, that and, and the st john's uh, college reading list i mean you got to start reading and you've got to start uh, diversifying your reading and you have to educate yourself you become self-educated in a lot of ways if you're lucky enough to connect with uh, organizations such as yourself that will even broaden you further but you've got to take it upon yourself to to do it if you don't You know, I just don't know how the the future is so rosy and bright for you. It could be rosy and bright for your first 10 years, 15 years. But after that, I mean, where do you go from there? Um, Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah.
0: our my college roommates a, a perfect picture of of what you would say, which is he had a four year degree in liberal arts and then he went to the London School of Economics. He went into Anderson Consulting and then learned to code after he got there and had a hugely successful career uh, that kind of the opposite of the way people do it now you, uh let's let's switch gears a little bit you write about alfred marshall's theory of economics as biological science rather than mechanical science uh explain this from your writing
2: well it you know, you have to really go back to, you know, you've got to go back to the beginning and, and, and Newton and, and and when you kind of go through Principia and, and it just you can't overestimate how powerful Newton was at that time. Because if you think about it, you know, prior to Newton, um, if you wanted to ask questions about the world, the universe, you go to the church and the, the church basically and the priests and theologians would basically tell you this is how the world works right and 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 then you know newton comes along and and he kind of develops these universal laws um and you just can't overstate how significant it was because it meant that the scientists no longer had to rely on the divinity for understanding they could begin to study it themselves and so newton you know opened up this entire world of, of knowledge and what happened though was that, uh, and if you kind of think about the second law of motion for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Everybody started to latch on Newtonian physics to help explain their disciplines, and you can go back in the history and kind of look at this. But economics clearly said, okay, you know, supply demand equilibrium, the second law of motion. So you had this entire Newtonian view of the world that was embedded in economics, and 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 the mechanistic approach that Newtonian in uh, physics uh, portrays is that it's as it's, it's predictable as a clock. You know, you talked about the clockwork universe and, and that's good. That's enviable because, you know, it, it kind of seduces you with a sense of certainty uh, and gives you, you know, the comfort that you have the absolute answer. And then, you know, obviously that goes on for a couple hundred years. And, and then Alfred Marshall, and if you go through his textbooks, you know, it's all equilibrium based, but, uh, you know, he, he, he's struggling with it, too, because, you know, his models are explaining uh, a system, an economic system that doesn't seem to behave like a clockwork universe. You know, it's a reductionist philosophy where if you understand the individual parts, you can understand the whole. Uh, that works in physics. That works in, you know, in atoms and, and planets and things, inanimate type objects. But when you get into organic systems... Uh, it's the whole that's influencing the individual parts because the individual parts are learning from the whole, they're evolving, they're adapting, they're changing. And so it becomes, a, you, can't, you can't study biology from a reductionist standpoint. You have to study the system as a whole. And as I said earlier, there's just no mathematics yet to try to predict this constant evolutionary process that's going on in biological systems, which are economies and stock markets. They're exactly biological systems. There's no math to do it. And so you're kind of left with that, okay, what do I do next? And, you know, Santa Fe is working hard at at trying to understand nonlinear dynamics and and they're doing their best. But as as Bill says, he just thinks it may be next to impossible that we'll ever reach a level of certainty that Newton had reached in physics. But, you know, I'm repeating myself, but, you know, lacking that ability to predict, we just go back to the, you know, new faces, go back to the old models and keep, you know, shoveling out that junk that says, you know, it's a linear system and uh, it works on equilibriums. And, you know, I guess if you can swallow that and go on and get a job, that's, that's a way to get a paycheck. But anybody with their right mind would look at it and say, no, it's not a linear system. It's in equilibrium some of the times, but it has these, you know, non-equilibrium spurts, these non-linear uh, episodes uh, It has e- increasing, econo- you know, increasing economic returns, which is never supposed to happen in equilibrium system. And, and you kind of look at it and go, this is, you know, this is nonsense. But you have to navigate. You have to continue to map on uh, and continue to move forward. And then that, that took us right into philosophy, which is, you know, how philosophically can you help solve problems in a system that you, you yourself cannot predict? And that's where Bill Miller came in, in a large way.
0: Well, uh, that, uh, my, my uh, professor in econ was a Newton guy. Cole, I, I can't resist. Cole, you got to tell him your
1: favorite Newton quote about heavenly bodies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, Newton got caught in the South Seas bubble, and he says, I can, under, I can understand the, the movement of celestial bodies, but not the madness of crowds. Yeah. And so. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, let's go
0: on to the uh, El Farol problem, which <laughs> we find keenly interesting. Uh, just having a tape, you don't believe in the efficient market hypothesis. Uh, so share th- that with us.
2: Well, I, I would, I, you know, I, I would say, Bill, that I, I do believe in the efficient market hypothesis that the market is frequently efficient. It's just not always efficient. Uh, most of the time, uh, the markets get it right uh, within a small degree, um, uh, plus or minus what, what would be fair value. But, And this is going back to John Zerwicky's, you know, work of wisdom of the crowds and Basically, if you have a, and Michael Mowbison has has talked about this well. If you have a a diverse group of inputs um, that uh, you know have an incentive, in order to make good decisions, and an aggregation mechanism, which would be the market, you know the system uh, gets it right most of the time. It's it's when you have these diversity breakdowns uh, that ultimately you know you get these wide mispricings. People become overly optimistic on the way up, and mispricing occurs, or What's happening today, you can see in the market uh, overly pessimistic and there's, you know, there's wide divergence in, in, in certain stocks and in intrinsic value now because of that fear. So, you know, I would argue that, you know, that's the, you know, that's the whole problem with the, uh, the market sometimes is that it's frequently efficient, just not always efficient. And your job is to figure out, well, when it's not efficient, that's when I strike and I strike big uh, to make those excess returns. But to the El Faro, that's a Brian Arthur quiz. There's an Irish Bob in, uh, Irish pub uh, in Santa Fe, and he kind of had this idea of the problem that comes from biological systems making predictions would be this similar challenge of trying to make predictions about how many people would show up at the El Faro ball on a Thursday night, I think it was, in bar and so he kind of walked through all these different iterations of how to make the predictions and ultimately became kind of a infinite loop because you're always changing them the prediction models because the people are always changing their behaviors and you can never get to you know the end result uh, you know I'd say well you know if it's it's raining you know a lot of people don't go on Thursday but then once people understood that not a lot of people go on Thursday nights when it rains and everybody shows up because it's the bar's empty and you can get a good seat so it, He was just basically saying that that's kind of infinite loop of never being able to solve the problem because the system continually learns and adapts, uh, and that's exactly what happens in markets.
1: You wrote something that to old-timers might not be a problem, but to a millennial-age person might seem antithetical to what they know. Um, I'm going to put a little quote from your book uh, in here. Quote, some might argue that the Federal Reserve, by altering interest rates and making open market purchases and sales, acts as the central controller of the economy but as we all know the fed is not omnipotent if we stop and think we realize that the equity and debt markets have no central controller and both are excellent example examples of self-organizing self-reinforcing systems end quote so robert are you telling me that the fed isn't god
2: <laughs> no i thought it was the bond market was supposed to have been the guy wasn't that it at one time yeah Bill Clinton said, i want to come back as the bond market ah. Yeah, I, you know, it plays a role. Uh, it certainly plays a role, but the system learns, uh, and, and it's not always, a, so, all right, so you know, I, I clearly, you know, Jerome Powell acted uh, in a godlike fashion uh, when the pandemic was unfolding, uh, and uh, the amount of money that he was able to inject into the system using the Ben Bernanke playbook actually, you know, saved us from a horrible global depression. So that was kind of a godlike moment, uh, but And and then you learn to, you know, the market began to learn as to what this stimulus was going to mean, and and things of that nature. All right, so now the Fed is really out of the omnipotent business right now. Its it's hands are tied, and it's not going to be godlike what they can do. It's the problem now is the economy is decelerating at at a very rapid rate, and with inflation being sticky, it's the very first time that they're going to have to raise rates in an economy that is slowing. I think the first time since the 1970s. But the market's going to learn, right? The market will learn what's going to work and what doesn't work, and how to uh, solve these problems. So the, the Federal Reserve plays a role, but I don't think it's omnipotent all the time. It strikes when it's opportunistic to strike. But this will be a, a this is a sobering lesson for a lot of people who've been managing money for the last twenty to thirty years. That you know we relied on the Greenspan put for so many years and the Bernanke put for so many years and the Powell struck that put, you know, brilliantly. Uh, Now we've got to solve some problems without that put. Uh, And, uh, you know, the Fed is, you know, is handcuffed and they're not going to be as godlike in their ability to to change the system. The system will then, though, change because it has to.
1: Robert, to follow uh, right off the backside of that conversation about the Fed and kind of market participants thinking, you know, what would the Fed do? uh, You point out that Sir work on collective comes up in your book. Um, he says you need diversity and independence by the participants. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, since we're kind of mocking the idea that people have said to us, which is, um, you know, that things can't get too bad because, you know, the fed would come and rescue everybody. Um, I, d- does that mean independence and diversity could be currently lost in the stock market? And then what that would kind of lead is that it also renders wisdom, like, you know, common wisdom, uh, is lost too.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It's a very interesting question, Cole. I guess in, in my, I'll, take the, I'll take the other side of the bet. I think in some ways when we knew that the uh, Fed was always there as a standby you know, a put to inject liquidity, drop rates in times of economic stress, it really did reduce diversity because everybody kind of knew what was going to happen next. Um, and, you know, then we might argue, did the system become unstable? You know, yes, no. Did you end up with extremes in valuations in certain aspects of the market? Yes, no. But to the degree that that everybody kind of latches on to the same solution or the same outcome, you know, diversity does, you know, start to break down a little bit. Um, and, and that becomes a suboptimal way in which to think about problem solving. So let's let's push forward. If we don't have you know we don't know what the roadmap is for the fed perfectly now we can argue that they probably aren't going to cut interest rates are probably not going to do quantitative easing the economy is slowing um uh, you know we're 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 in uh, difficult positions geopolitically supply you know all, all the problems that perhaps in the past the fed would have cut rates to help they're not going to do it well now you're making decisions independently and probably different than a lot of other people are making decisions because there's no, there's no previous roadmap in which to follow. Does, does that make any sense? Does that resonate with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In which sense. case, in which case that would argument would suggest that the system actually becomes healthier and probably less volatile um, as, as more people are making independent decisions differently than latching on to the same solution. So in some ways that, When we knew the feds roadmap we knew the feds map diversity was actually being reduced not increased
0: yeah and and volatility was being reduced and that that was emboldening a lot of financial euphoric and stupid stuff so uh let's go to uh terence odian's uh two studies on trading uh we really love this from your book can can you explain his work
2: yeah very good work here i i guess i would i would Update that if I if I were writing the book now I would update that to the work of uh, 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 Martins and Crimmers, and Crimmers and Pettajusto Martin Crimmers and Pettajusto on their work of high active share portfolios and low turnovers. So they 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 would have updated uh, uh, Terence's work and basically said yes, um, you know what you see are the superior outperforming portfolios are actually portfolios that are more concentrated. Um, uh, less diversified, they called them high active share portfolios. I think when I wrote the Warren Buffett portfolio in '98, you know, we just call them concentrated. I think Warren said it was focused portfolios that we called it focus investing. But the academicians latched on to it about a decade later and uh, began to actually mathematically uh, calculate the performance differentials between broadly diversified portfolios and concentrated portfolios concentrated portfolios having high active share because they were so different uh, from an index broadly diversified portfolios having low active share because they were so similar to an index and they ran the study and found uh, in fact it's the high active shares the concentrated portfolios that that outperform uh, the broadly diversified closet indexers but then and this gets to Terence's work. What they began to found out is even within high active share portfolios there was a subgroup that did even better and that was the low turnover portfolios and and to this is terence's work about trading is hazardous to your health those that were more kind of buy and hold had lower turnover ratios were far superior to even high active share portfolios that had high turnover ratios and so robert. then robert
0: Yep. N- now you're you're speaking our love language here. Uh, so <laughs> we, uh, we just had Ankur Parikh at our first investor conference, and yep. he's done some additional great work on Martin Kremers on active share. So what we like to in, in our work, we, we think there's four ways to deviate. And you've covered a few of them. Uh, it, w- it would be stock picking what we call the John Templeton factor, which is courage. Right. Being willing yep. to buy when everyone else is is uh, crapping their drawers and, and, and then uh, concentration and then long duration. And, yep. and I, 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 as the years go by, I almost think the hardest thing for people in the value world to do is to do long duration.
2: Oh, it, it, well, it is because from a behavior, you're spot on, Bill, you spot on, which is, and this is what I've wrestled with. Uh, and we wrote a little bit about it in the money mind book. Um, is that, that if you're going to be concentrated low turnover and go for long duration, which is the most mispriced part of the market, right, um, that you, you have to come up with some alternative way in which to measure your progress. I think just relying on short-term prices is going to be just too psychologically challenging uh, for most people because of the prospect theory uh, insights that uh and Kahneman gave us that, you know, when people rely on price and price goes down, it's less discomforting than an equal unit going up. So you've got to come up with some alternative. And I, you may like this, but I said, you know, it's just unfair that we have to compete against private equity. Private equity, for the most part, is a concentrated, low turnover, long duration bet. But they don't have to price their portfolio. They're <laughs> in their NAV is, you know, one dollar. Uh, it's you know, not in the newspaper. So, yeah, it's not it's not traded every day, and it's interesting when you look at private equity results. They, you know, the NAV is like a dollar it goes to a dollar two, and then it goes to ninety nine cents, and then it's a dollar four. You know, it doesn't bounce around a lot. And then when they sell it, it's worth a dollar thirty. It's like where did that come from? But they they don't have to wrestle with that ever changing stock price that that we have in the public markets. And so I haven't bridged. You know, I'm looking for ways in which we can help the client understand their economic progress as if it was a private equity fund with no pricing. So we nope. try to help them understand, you know, sales, earnings, cash flows, return on capital, and that progress of those attributes as if they were a private equity owner. Does that make sense?
1: It does. And, and so I'm going to, I'm going to tear up the, I'm going to pull a Tom Keen tear up the script. Uh, and I'm going to, let's go right back at this. So isn't that Robert, why Buffett used book value to track his progress because um, what what I think we've talked a lot about this uh, here the last few weeks, yeah. but return on equity is nothing more than book value growth, okay. And what everyone does is talks about return on equity, and they to your point they don't uh, they don't connect that up to what it means in economic progress, right? What what does that mean per share that's still sitting out among the existing holders? Um, and, and even Buffett, you know, what was it two years ago? He said we're going to quit publishing book value per growth, or you shouldn't pay attention to it like we have in the past. So h- how do you do that in a world where we don't think there's really a benchmark for tracking economic progress in companies?
2: Yeah. I, well, there was a lot of reasons why, you know, Warren moved off the you know, the book value because, you know, so much of the value and so many of the investments wasn't being captured. The change in value is not being captured by the change. On a in gap articles, basis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, on a gap, yeah, on a, on a gap basis. Best. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of people are starting to write about the value of intangibles, which aren't captured in a hard book basis but we need to be thinking about how do they how do intangibles add value and how do they change over time i i i thought you know cole uh that when warren introduced and it was an early i think it was early 2000s my mind's, uh, i think is that he started to look through earnings remember he was doing look through earnings in the berkshire annual reports where he mm-hmm. said mm-hmm. i own x percent of the coca-cola company and so therefore I own X percent of its EPS, and he tabulated all of his percentage ownership of earnings of uh, Cap Cities ABC, American Express, Coca-Cola, and he, for several years, uh, you know, was showing you the growth of his uh, look-through earnings, and he basically did this long episode in the, in the Berkshire Annual Report narrative about what you focus on is look-through earnings, and if you focus on look-through earnings, not stock price, you'll make better decisions and I thought it was brilliant mm. I said yeah I'm all over this and we did that you know for for our clients it, it became a little prob- problematic because as you grew as a firm you know you had new assets and things like that it, it mathematically was always you know somewhat problematic to solve perfectly uh, but the concept was brilliant which is he was giving you an economic way to think about the growth of your portfolio independent of price and then he stopped doing it and, and nobody could ever figure out. And, and he flirted with it a couple of times, came back once or twice, but basically over time quit putting it in the Berkshire annual report. And I actually, you know, I, was, I saw Carol Lewis several years ago and I said, look, Carol, I said, you know, I know he's not going to answer this, but if I ever, you know, I, my question submitted to you would be, will you ever reinstate look through earnings? Uh, and she never asked the question. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. what? you know what what happened? why you know why do we? But that conceptually you, you see where I'm going and I think we if, 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 if judging our progress by price has all its pitfalls as we know it does, behavioral pitfalls, then we just have to come up with an alternative way. And if you think if you ever go to a private equity um, you know review or a private equity, uh, annual performance review, it's all economics. They're just talking about the economic returns of their business. And I'm, I'm looking at them going, that's exactly what we should be doing in publicly traded portfolios. And and so, some so, ways, systemize it in such a way.
0: So funny that you mentioned that because we recently read The King of Capital. And and basically, I concluded that Schwartzman was doing on a private basis what we try to do with public equities. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, Robert, uh, we're kind of making the argument... Uh, theoretically two people that the next 10 to 15 years are going to be more like 1964 to 1981 than they are going to be like the last 10 or 12 years or uh, 81 to 98. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you, we, you get into a subject, uh, what, what you call the sidewinder market, and you use the late 70s as your picture explain to the listeners what a sidewinder market is people under 40 probably doesn't know don't know what that is and and talk about how much different it is to navigate as a uh, investment uh, uh, stocks stock picker
2: well you know the, and the, i think we call it a sideways market or maybe i to call it a sidewinder sideways market basically is a market that over a period of time actually doesn't go up a whole lot you know compared to 1980 I guess what the beginning you know Bill correct me, nineteen eighty-two, the great bull market began with the interest rates topping out at fifteen percent and summarily really went down. And we had this incredible market of, you know, average annual return, I think it was eighteen percent per year for you know almost twenty years. And for a large part of our most people's existence, they've they've had the tailwind of multiple expansion and, and things of that nature, and markets have, have gone up even in the last two or three years. You know, you know, we've had some exceptional markets. But there, is, there are parts in history, and we may, and to your point, but we may be heading back into those periods where returns in the market are not going to be double digit. Um, I think it was McKinsey and Company that started to flip the idea of lower for longer. You have lower GDP growth, you have lower um, yields in the bond market. So your aggregate returns of balanced portfolios are going to be nowhere near you know, what they had been in the. In the 80s and 90s, for sure, and and so you you end up with much lower returns. So if you're an index investor, uh, boy, that that that's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard for you to reach some of your retirement goals or your income goals that you have in later in life. So what do you do? And then, then the answer is that you've got to become the stock picker. You've got to find out, you know, what stocks have the highest future expected returns of, up and beyond what the aggregate is going to do. Um, and then being able to to bet them accordingly. And so it's a challenge because, you know, as Warren says, if you're a know nothing investor by the index fund, which is exactly the, the best advice, if you really don't know how to invest, you don't know how to think about stocks in the market in an optimal way, just be an index investor and turn off the TV. But now index investing going forward uh, could be very suboptimal returns or returns that, that won't help you reach your goal. And so if that's the case, and Always be, always be careful, Bill, when a stock picker tells you it's going to be a stock picker's market, but it, it may be that we're heading towards more of a stock picker's market, which is what works in sideways markets.
0: Um, Robert, if you, if, if you were Buffett's widow, would you rather have Berkshire Hathaway or would you rather have the index he's going to put her in?
2: God, great question. Because um, I, I do think that Berkshire will do okay, but it's going to be kind of high single-digit, low double-digit type number. And that, you know, I think, you know, Warren has basically said over time, we, we could probably skin the, the market by a point or two, but nothing like, you know, 10 points like he's done over history. You know, I'd, I'd probably take Berkshire just because probably has much less downside risk than the S&P 500 does.
1: Well, yeah. And, and on in that part of your book, you were talking about systems versus uh, individuals and kind of the, the mathematics of it. Um, and, and we, we love that because it's the difference of a system, AKA the stock market doing poorly versus a stock, uh, maybe succeeding. So, um, let's see, I'm going to, I'm going to read a quote from Kenneth Arrow in your book, our knowledge of the way things work in our society or in our nature comes trailing clouds of vagueness, vast ills have followed a belief in certainty End quote, are there things you feel personally today that people treat with certainty that are far from certain?
2: Oh, sure. Um, I, you know, I, 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 it never ceases to amaze me, um, you know, how people are so certain as what's going to happen in the market <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> over the next couple of months. And, I, and I you know, I, I kind of look at this and, you know, we all watch the talking heads on Bloomberg or CNBC or whatever your favorite program is. And and I just wonder, knowing that, you know, the odds of them actually being able to actually predict what's going to happen in the next three to six months is is so low. Uh, why do they get so much airtime? And then it finally occurred to me that most of the people that actually are watching television would, are really attracted to people that can actually tell them what's going to happen, whether they're right or wrong. It's kind of yeah. like you know, I I, I want to listen to someone who's going to tell me what's going to happen next month. Never mind, he has no qualifications doing so. I just enjoy listening to somebody who can tell me what's going to happen the next six months. So you know, it, it it never ceases to amaze me that we spend so much intellectual capital. Uh, Trying to figure these things out when I just got finished explaining why this can never be figured out. Um, but you know, that that's so so be it. That's that's what it is. I, I, I would you know, I throw out. I'd love to pivot to philosophy because I think what I learned from Bill was it's okay that you can't figure out what's going to happen in the market the next three, six, nine months. You may not be able to figure out what's going to happen over the next year or two. Although the odds would tell you, since history, you know, your odds go up to the degree that you're. Uh, you know, your holding period is extended. But what he taught me was philosophically speaking, there is a way uh, which you can profit without knowing ahead of time what's going to work. And the answer was his studies of pragmatism in William James, which is just wait until uh, the optimal solutions begin to show themselves. And it could be a company, it could be a strategy and stuff like that. It, it, It eventually will show itself and the pragmatist then understanding the cash value of this new idea, this new company, this new strategy, whatever the case may be, the pragmatist would just latch onto it and run with it. Although, you know, a lot of people are kind of operate from the correspondence <clears throat> theory of truth, which is I already know what's going on. I've already figured it out. I already run my company like this. I don't need any new ideas. Sure. Bill Miller would be a guy that has lived his entire life evolving and latching on to new ideas and had a great, great track record over time without ever having to worry about predicting what's going to happen over the next couple of years. Does that, does I have just floated that up? Does that resonate with yeah, you guys? No, that, at
1: make, I, that makes sense. Cause I remember when, like, uh, we talked about before we started the show, Bill and I chatted with, uh, uh, Bill, uh, back in the spring of 20 and we asked him what he thought of oil. And I remember Bill saying that he was, he was a bear on oil. Yeah, And so to your point, you know, he's a very incredibly brilliant and intelligent investor. Um, and at the same time, you know, you can't know everything about everything. And that's not the goal.
2: Yeah. He understands mispricing. I mean, you know, I think where bill excels is his ability to understand like today, he loves, uh, home builders and he actually loves energy too. And he, he's probably, you know, if oil stays at this price and goes higher. He's going to be right. But he understands the, he understands the moment. He understands what's going on in the moment. And therefore, where is the mispricing in this moment? Right. No, that doesn't mean, yeah it, but that doesn't mean you know the moment will be you know that same moment a year from now or two years from now he just understands the current moment and understands what's mispriced in the current moment but at the same time what so what what the challenge of understanding bill is that he's doing two or three t- things at the same time in his portfolio he's sure. buying oils and things like that but then he's buying some really cool businesses and then he's buying you know cryptos and coinbase and and all that he's got so many different strategies running in the portfolio at the, at the same time, but a lot of that future stuff that he's latched onto, he latched onto it because it was working. A pragmatist would latch on to the cash value of an idea. If it is working, there must be something good to it. And then yeah. you try to figure it out. That's you know that was AOL in the very beginning. It's working. What's going on here? Uh, he figured it out. And uh, you know he's done that with so many things in his career. That if, if you're a pragmatist, if, if your philosophy is pragmatism, you don't have to really get weirded out that I am not going to understand. I, I can't predict what's going to happen next year, two years from now, three years from now. But if I'm a good observer, I can begin to understand what's working two years from now, three years from now. And then you latch onto it and go with it.
1: Robert, what books are you reading right now, personally?
2: Oh, good question. Um, I'm looking up on my library shelf. Uh, I just got into you know one of my favorite books, and I just read it again. Was the Metaphysical Club by Lewis Manan? Um, I think that that that's a phenomenally great book, and that and that speaks to to pragmatism. Um, uh, I read Harold Bloom's uh, How to How to Read and Why. I think Harold, you know, Harold Bloom recently passed away, Yale professor of literature, and uh, God, just what a brilliant guy. Of uh, and he, you know, he, his first line in the book I think was, you know. Where shall we find wisdom? And, and the answer is in literature. And so, you know, I always try to keep a. I, I, I was underserved in, in the great works of literature, and 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 tried to catch up with that. Uh, what else is over there? Um, oh, Pinker's book on rationality was good. Uh, what else is up there? I, I like William green's richard Wiser, and Happier." I know that was a really popular book for a, for a, for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I just got done reading that about. Two months ago.
2: You won't go wrong with that. I read, uh, let's see, I'm going over here. A lot of Richard Rorty. Uh, Rorty was a, if you think about the first four great pragmatists, it was Charles Sanders Pierce and William James, Oliver Wendell Holmes and John Dewey. Richard, and, and, and Bill turned me on to him again. You know, Richard Rorty, phenomenal philosopher. Uh, and going through these books, and um, then for fun, I always read Sherlock Holmes. I just never get tired of reading Sherlock Holmes. I, You know, he's a great detective. He solves puzzles. Uh, I like his uh, attitudes about how he does it, and uh, so I read, so I try to keep diversified. I read, you know, Sherman Kent's book on strategic analysis, uh, or it was called Strategic Intelligence. It was a definitive book written in the 1940s. Going through that, trying to figure out, okay, what's going on. Uh, in Russia and how to think about that. So I, I, I try to read a lot of different books uh, at the same time on different topics.
1: We're kind of getting late in our time. So the, I, I, what I wanted to come back to was, um, is there anything that we haven't talked about from your writing, Robert, um, that, that you think needs to be mentioned?
2: Great question. I think you've of a, a, a thoroughly great job in asking the questions. Well prepared. Um, God, we covered so many wonderful topics. I'm just, so I'm thumbing through the book. You, you covered a hell of a lot of good stuff. Here. Congratulations!
0: Only, only, only Cole
2: would ask for more. Yeah, yeah. I'm, am am like his,
0: he's like his mom.
2: Yeah, I think you know the one. That, so there's a there's a part in the book, um, and I think it was John Holland talked about exploration and exploitation, right? So you exploit what you know, what is working, and what is currently working. You exploit it, and and you continue to make. Uh, a lot of money, but how much time do you spend, um, on new ideas? And, and so, you know, in the book, I think we talked about, uh, you know, it was a Norwegian fisherman, you know, they would have 12, uh, boats going out and 10 of them would go to the proving grounds of where the fish had been found. And two of them would just take off on a random direction. Um, the medicine man in the Indian camps looking for the next hunting ground would roll the bones. And invariably, he would send a lot of the a lot of his uh, hunters out in the direction where they had found uh, the last (laughs) bisons and things like that. But he'd send, you know, two or three in these random directions. And it's the randomness of going into different ways and different parts. It's just like leave yourself wide open. Give anything a chance, biographies, literature, any just give anything a chance uh, to see what it does to your mental acumen. And and, in, and so there's no plan to it. It's a randomness to it. But it's actually an art of exploring new ideas is a randomness act of being able to continue the diversity of, of, of how you get ideas. And I, I underserved that for so many years because I just got specialized on Buffett and specialized on finance and accounting. And, you know, I still read a lot of that stuff. But Boy, here in the later years, I'm just I'm trying to go in, in so many different directions and grasp on to so many different ideas from so many different sources, fiction and nonfiction. That that's a big part, um, I think, of building worldly wisdom.
1: I agree with you, and I I I've uh, I think we all fall a victim in this business uh, being too insular, uh, you know, to what we do versus in uh, looking at the world around us. So, I've already written down the Metaphysical Club uh, as a mm-hmm. book I need to check out, and this is gonna wrap us up for our episode. A big thank you from both Bill and I, Robert, for joining us today for the podcast. Robert's book, Investing, The Last Level Art, explains how we need to think about not only the progression of human learning, but also our own personal learning. I know how many of the listeners probably already own this book, but if you haven't, you're missing out. Go buy his book today. It's hard to see who can't benefit from this. I mean, I think educators, business people, investors, like we've talked about in a lot of our discussion today. I also wanna thank my dad, Bill, for hosting with me today. It's been quite a bit of fun. For our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeedcap.com. That's podcast at smeedcap.com. Thank you for joining us for A Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smeed Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.